Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Peter Docker. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, Henry. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a great conversation. Peter's going to share his amazing journey and experiences, how he got to where he is today, and his approach and method of leadership that he calls jump seat leadership, which is the topic of his latest book. If you want to receive more information about the How of Business, including the show notes page for this episode, and to schedule a free coaching consultation with me, just visit thehowofbusiness.com. So Peter Docker is a speaker, a teacher, and an author. He teaches people how to navigate the challenges of leadership. And his latest book is Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by, have, by Handing Over Control. He delivers the message that leadership is about lifting people up and giving them the space they need so that when the time is right, they can take the lead. Peter's also the co-author of Find Your Why and formerly a founding igniter at Simon Sinek Incorporated. Peter draws on his 25-year career in the Royal Air Force and over 14 years spent partnering with businesses around the world to inspire others to lead from the jump seat. Peter lives in Oxford, England. And so once again, Peter Docker, welcome to the show. It's a delight to be here. Thanks for having me, Henry. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to this. So I'd like to start as I usually start with, with the journey, and, and we could spend hours on that because you have so much experience, such a varied background. But where, where I'd love to start is just your experience in the Royal Air Force. So would you just give me at a high level that experience? You spent a number of years in the Royal Air Force. So, so tell me about that. It was an incredible time. So just under 25 years, I guess, I was in the Royal Air Force. So I joined as a pilot in my very early 20s. And at the age of 25, I found myself flying our prime minister around the world. I was wow. one of her pilots, uh, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher at the time. So that dates me a little bit. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I, I flew large passenger jets and I, I went on to command a squadron, uh, which is the fighting unit of the Royal Air Force, as it is in the US Air Force. And during that time, I was uh, leading a, a squadron that was involved in what's called air refueling, where we give gas away to fighter jets. So essentially, you're flying around an airplane full of gas, uh, totally unarmed, totally <laughs> undefended, but you give that gas away to fighter jets. So my big leadership challenge, or one of them, was leading a couple hundred people during the Iraq war in 2003. So yeah, that, that was a major, major thing for me. But also in the Air Force, I did many other things. Uh, as I got promoted, I flew less and um, looked after the people who did the flying. Um, but also I did other things. I was a negotiator with NATO when the Berlin Wall came down, negotiating with the Russians. Um, I fancy we could do a bit more of that at the moment, but that's right. another story. Yeah. And um, Yes, I was a negotiator with your Secretary of State and the State Department on export licensing. I ran a 13 billion pound, that's $20 billion program. I taught leadership at our defense college to uh, senior officers. So it's been an extraordinary journey that I've had. And that's just touching the, uh, the tip of the iceberg in the Air Force. So yes, uh, a wonderful 25 years that literally took me around the world. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Did you, as a young kid, did you always aspire to go into the Royal Air Force? Um, 
No, it was a it was a decision that or a choice that came to me, and I'll quickly explain. You know, <laughs> the choices we make in life define who we are, and. I started by going off to university to study a couple of courses about which I knew nothing, <laughs> computing and electronic engineering. But what motivated me to do that, Henry, was that my parents at the time had both lost their jobs. They were very hard up and I didn't want to be a financial burden on them. And more than that, I wanted to be able to get a great job to help support them in the future. So that was the motivation to go and study those courses. But then halfway through my degree course, something else happened. The Falkland Islands down at the South Atlantic, um, this was 1982, sure. they were invaded by Argentina. Now, the Falkland Islands are seen as a British dependency. The people on those islands consider themselves to be British. And this incensed me, not for any political reason. I, I didn't understand the politics at the time. What incensed me was that someone was imposing their will on others. And this is before you I, had joined. This is when you were younger at that point. Before you joined the Air Force, or were you in the Air Force already? No, no, I, I, I was it's before I joined the Air yeah, Force. But yeah. this is the reason that I joined. Yeah, I left yeah. university halfway through my course. Wow! To join the Royal Air Force because I'd had some association with the Royal Air Force growing up, um, and I felt that by joining the Royal Air Force, I could become part of a team that in the future could help others who could not help themselves in similar situations. So. That was a big crossroads in my life where I chose to turn left instead of carrying straight on. Mm -hmm. uh, I subsequently uh, completed degrees uh, during my time, but no, that was a big life choice. And that what, that's what drove me to, to join the Royal Air Force. Did you know you wanted to be a pilot? Um, I'd had some experience of flying whilst I was at university. I, I had some free training that's provided actually by the Royal Air Force. And uh, yes, that, that gave me the, the bug, as it were. And um, yeah, it, it's perhaps one of the best offices you can have uh, sitting up on high uh, in an aeroplane. So yes, I, I joined as a pilot and I flew, I guess, for about 12 out of my 25 years. But you reach a certain level where, as I say, you no longer are flying. You're sure. taking care of the people who fly. Mm -hmm. So what do you think, what do you attribute to this interest in focusing on leadership, becoming competent at it and helping others. Where do you think that started to evolve? Well, I think there are times when I, I've struggled uh, on the leadership front. And I think that's okay, because that's where, if you're willing to self-reflect, that's where you can learn. And I already mentioned the Iraq War of 2003. That was a big challenge for me because, um, well, some listeners might remember, it was the, the politics behind it and the, the demonstrations that went on in various capitals around the world against the war before it started. It, it's very unsettling. You know, when you, when you join the military um, and sign on the dotted line, you, you don't have footnotes at the bottom saying, I'll do my duty, except under these certain circumstances, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> right. you're expected to, to do your duty and serve your country, which is fine. It's what you sign up for. But it doesn't mean to say that you don't think about what you're doing. And it was very unsettling to feel that the, the press and the public were 100% behind you. Uh, and so that created an environment where it was a, a, a big leadership challenge, because, of course, my people they would have had similar thoughts, I'm sure. They're all very intelligent, well-trained, bright people. So 
yeah, of course they're having similar thoughts. So that was the essence of a great leadership challenge. And I navigated my way through that. And I think, uh, well, you know, we were, we were tasked with 479 missions and we flew 479 missions. Wow. Um, and this is an, a 40 old airplane that didn't have enough spares or, or whatever. But my greatest uh, joy is that all of the people I took out, I brought home safely. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think I had the opportunity to reflect on uh, what I did perhaps right, uh, what I did, well, what I could have done better. And uh, yeah, that's when I started to study leadership, I think, because mm. it's difficult. It's hard. And uh, I, I just wanted to get better. And so to have the opportunity to study it and to um, see how other people lead and to codify it in a way that uh, will help others uh, has been a, a great um, pleasure and privilege. Yeah. yeah but also what, what I'm hearing in part, Peter, is even then you're, you were a personality that was introspective and also had empathy for how are others going through this? But it leads me in, as you're talking about, to ask, do you think leaders are born or developed? That's, that, that's the, the classic question, isn't it, Henry? I, I think, I think the, the, there are some key aspects of leadership which um, you know, some people have innately um, uh, and others less so. But I think it's something that we can all practice and get better at. You know, I, I don't think there is any such thing as a, the perfect leader. Um, in my experience, all of our strengths, you can turn that coin over and there can be a, a weakness on the other side. And what's really important is not getting it right all of the time. What's important is what's the trend over time and where are you sourcing yourself from? Are you sourcing yourself from a, a place of fear and ego or are you sourcing yourself from a place of love and possibility and humble confidence? Um, because that's what's important. And the ability to, to get up and commit to doing just a little bit better tomorrow than perhaps mm. you've done today. I think that is the most important thing for us all if we want to grow in leadership. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems to me that if you, if you pretend to be perfect, if you force it, then that's really not leadership. I think part of being a leader is showing some vulnerabilities, showing that you're, you're, yeah. it's a progress uh, for yourself as well as those that you're leading. Yeah, I, I'd like to pick up on that word vulnerability, Henry, because it, it's something that's talked about, about a lot in, in leadership. And with vulnerability comes this word of authenticity and being authentic. And it's very popular at the moment to, to talk about being authentic, you know, sharing what you feel with you, your people. I don't 100% agree with that because... It's not necessarily always in service of your people to be 100% authentic. So give me, a, I'll give you an example. Back in the Iraq war, 2003, um, I was fearful about what might happen. I was unsure about what we were being asked to do. I was concerned that we didn't have all the equipment and supplies that ideally we, we needed. Um, but to show and share that with my team would have been the last thing that they needed. Yeah, they were looking for to. They were looking to you to say it's okay. We're we're going to get through this. To to give a foundation, yeah. And I I love what Seth Godin has to say about authenticity. You know, he says that uh, a four old four four year old child is authentic. You know, when it's hungry or 
or tired, it will cry and wail. That's authenticity. But we lose that right to be authentic by the time we're about 10 or 12. You know, we've got to have a filter in. Sure. And that filter is integrity. And going back to my example of the Iraq war, uh, I needed to have that filter of integrity in line with the position that I held. People were looking towards me for guidance, for clarity, for the reason why we were doing this, so as they could latch onto that and use it so as they were then able to focus on what they had to do. If I'd been totally authentic and shared all my feelings, that would not have given them the foundation they would have needed to do their job well, and importantly, to do it safely, yeah, and to come back home safe at the end of the, uh, the, the deployment. So yeah, authenticity fine, integrity better. Yeah. Have that filter in there that is reflective of the job, the position that you hold, and the, the leadership role that you have. Yeah, I love that. That makes sense. All right. Just so then, just briefly after leaving the Royal Air Force, you had a you've had a whole another diverse career as we already touched on. So just summarize that for me there. What what did you go on to do after that? Well, I left the Air Force early. Would you believe after twenty five years, I could have <laughs> stayed longer, but I I felt there was more I could do. So I, I left and I joined a, a remarkable consultancy where it was nothing to do with the military, nothing to do with flying, but it had everything to do with leading people. And we worked in very high risk environments, such as oil and gas, mining, construction, where people typically got killed or injured. And what we did, we went in and helped to create a leadership culture where everyone looked after one another and everyone went home safe at the end of each day. And it was remarkable work um, with many, many uh, different nationalities and languages often involved in the teams that we were working with. And I spent time in the Middle East, in Kazakhstan, uh, down in um, different parts of Africa. And that was a remarkable learning experience. But after three years, I thought, well, there's more I could do. <laughs> yeah. And it was at that time that I met Simon Sinek. I see. And it wasn't long after he'd published his book, Start With Why. And remarkably, in a great act of trust, he asked me to help take his message around the world, which is what I did. So... Um, yes, I think over the years I've traveled to 93 countries and have the privilege of working with leadership teams in practically every sector you can imagine in, um, in many of those countries. So, Impressive. yes. Yeah. But I, I should mention about two, two and a half years ago now, I decided to take a step away from Simon because I thought there's more I can do. And I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to bring together everything that I've learned from all of these remarkable experiences I've had and share it with others. And that's what led to uh, the book that you've mentioned, Leading from the Jump Seat. Yep. Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. There's a lot in that subheading there that I'm going to explore, but you've just shared what led to writing it. Who do you think it's for? Who is this book for? Well, the way I've put the book together, and yes, you can tell perhaps uh, from the title, there is um, a, a link to, to flying. I use flying as a, a metaphor throughout the, uh, the, the book because, the, well, the flight deck of a large aircraft is a, a microcosm of, of leadership. And I've seen some great leadership in emergency situations, and I've seen some fairly poor stuff as well. Um, but when it's at its best, it, it, it's pretty darn good. And so there are lots of my experiences in the book um, of what I've learned through uh, flying and the, the, the experiences I've had there. 
but then I've I've targeted the 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 book on four levels that I call learning to fly, flying, teaching others to fly, and then leading from the jump seat. So very quickly, learning to fly is all about figuring out what's deeply important to me as an individual. And the reason this is so valuable is that when we're very clear on what is the non-negotiables in our life, it gives us a huge reservoir of energy to have the courage to move forward even when we're stepping into the unknown. But then we get into a role where perhaps we're, we're doing very well, we're enjoying it. And that's what I refer to as flying. Yeah? And we're, we're great at what we do. Um, but then perhaps we get promoted and we might no longer be doing that work. We're looking after the people who are doing that work. And that's the opportunity then to teach others to fly, which is to the next level. And then the final level, leading from the jump seat, is when, well, it might be a CEO of a business or a founder of a business where you're taking that step back and you've equipped and you've lifted others up who now themselves are taking the lead and carrying forward those things which are deeply important to you. So in terms of who is the book for, then, well, it's for everyone, dare mm -hmm. I say. It's from the people who are just trying to figure out what's important to them in life and which direction they want to go in. And then all the way through to the folks who perhaps have established their own business and are looking at retiring or handing on and how to lead in such a way that they leave that organization in the best possible hands to be able to carry forward everything they've worked on throughout their lives. Yeah, as you explained very well also before we started recording, you, you think of it kind of in part as a how-to guide. And I love, Absolutely. as you had mentioned at the end of every chapter, you have that consider this section that just makes us ponder and kind of think through yeah. these things, yeah? Yeah, and I, I name that very specifically. You know, it, it's... Rather than ideas for action or do this, no, is consider this because each situation is different, and uh, it, well, that's the difference between being complicated and being complex. Complicated is like a computer program, uh, but one line of code follows the other. Complex is when one action doesn't necessarily have the same reaction every time, and so it is with leading people. Leading people is complex. And we have to learn how to dance in that complexity because one solution does not always um, create the same outcome in different situations. So that's why I, I, I coined the phrase consider this mm -hmm. because it's just an opportunity to prompt reflection and consideration of our own environment and how we can apply the ideas I've shared in that environment. It strikes me, Peter, that that might be why in part you had a stint there where you were negotiating and perhaps developed and learn that in negotiating some of these things, same principles come to play. Am I, is that something yeah. that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, let me build on that. I, I mentioned just a moment ago, Henry, figuring out what's deeply important to you. Right. So let me give you an example. For many people, family is deeply important, right? You know, I, I had a call from my wife a couple of years ago. She was sounding a bit distressed. She'd just been involved in a car accident. Mm -hmm. I dropped everything to go to a raid. It was only a couple of miles down the road. But here's the thing. Nothing would have got in my way yeah. to going to the aid of my wife. I was literally stepping into the unknown. I didn't know what I would find, but I went. Okay. Now, this is the interesting thing. That surge of energy that drives you forward into the unknown is driven by those things that are deeply important to you. So 
when you can discover and put into words those other things mm. which are deeply important to you, the non-negotiables. You know, for me, I mentioned earlier, the reason I went to university to study the courses I did was because I wanted it not to be a burden on my parents financially, and I wanted to be in a position to help them uh, financially later on. The reason I left university to join the Royal Air Force was because I wanted to uh, help others who could not help themselves uh, in the, the same situations that the Falcon Islanders found themselves in. And the way I characterize that is the notion of mutual respect. That is deeply important to me. Hmm. So here's the thing. When you've identified those, those non-negotiables, they give you this reservoir of energy. They give you the handrail to guide you when you're stepping into the unknown, which by definition goes alongside leadership, you know? And when we can characterize and put into words those non-negotiables, they turn into what I call stands. Right. Uh, there are stands and there are positions. Positions are against something. And we can hear a lot of language in politics and around the world at the moment, people taking up positions against others and against uh, other things. But the thing with a position is that it can only exist when there's a counter position, a counter, to, counter view. If that counter view dissolves, so does your position. A stand, on the other hand, is different. A stand is for something. It's what you believe in. And as such, it doesn't depend on anyone or anything else to exist. It's like having your own island and putting your flag on that island and saying, look, this is what I stand for. And the ships that sail on past, they can see what you stand for. And if they believe that too, they can come and join you on your island. But sure. importantly, if they don't believe that, they can sail on by and that's okay. Now, the thing with a stand is that it can grow inside of us. And when it's connected to those deeply non-negotiable things, then those stands can turn into commitments. And a commitment is when we take that stand and we put it into action. Just as I did when I chose to act on my stand for mutual respect, leave university and join the Royal Air Force. And so non-negotiables, your stands, commitments, they're all joined together. And when we're very clear on these things for ourselves, it helps us to lead ourselves better. And it also helps us to lead others better too. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. That's, that's what I was going to mention is that, so it seems to me that as you're, you're talking about this, these foundational components to our character, when we, the more we achieve clarity for ourselves on them, that is in part what allows us to become a better leader. Absolutely. It's when we're clear on these things, it starts to reinforce what people recognize as our character, what yeah. we can be relied upon. And I'll just mention in this mixed values, you know, um, I purposely don't go deeply into values because values aren't as fixed as we might think they are. I see. They're really not. You know, I'm sure like me, Henry, you, you consider yourself to be a, a fairly considerate person. But hey, if you're late for a meeting and you get to the parking lot and there's just one space left and you can see out the corner of your eyes someone else hunting for a space mm -hmm. chances are you'll turn a blind eye so to speak and take that place absolutely now you might feel bad about it afterwards <laughs> but hey what's happened to your value in the moment of being considerate to others okay so values can flex depending on circumstances our non-negotiables our stands do not they're much more fundamental. And that is why they are so much more valuable 
when leading in unknown situations or in times of uncertainty. This is Henry Lopez with a brief break from this episode to share a special offer from our new show sponsor, Send in Blue. Send in Blue provides digital marketing solutions, including email marketing, CRM, and much more. As an all-in-one marketing platform, SendinBlue supports businesses successfully navigating their digital presence by providing the tools to attract, engage, and nurture their customer relationships. SendinBlue helps you reach your customers digitally. You can create personalized emails to automate your customer experiences and workflows to guide your customers to your main message. Thrive digitally with SendinBlue and grow your business as you have the flexibility to grow your list as large as you want with unlimited contacts. Send in Blue's entire pricing structure is based on the number of emails sent, not the number of contacts stored, making it the most cost-effective marketing software for small businesses. Use the promo code HOWABUSINESS to get one free month of the light or premium Send in Blue plans. What more can you ask for? Try out Send in Blue. All right. I want to take a bit of a turn. You obviously yourself have accomplished extraordinary things. You talk about in the book. It's obviously partly in the title. What has been in your observation that holds people back from accomplishing extraordinary things relative to themselves, right? That's a, a definition mm. that, that's personal. But what do you think holds people back from accomplishing extraordinary things typically? Fear. So, let me expand on that. Everything we do in life, Henry, everything is driven by one or two things. It's driven either by fear or it's driven by love. I'll come back to love because people get a bit twitchy when I talk about love in a, in a business context, but I'll explain in a moment. Sure. Fear is generated inside of us when we, we sense that our life is on the line, is in danger. It's what has a step back from the oncoming car that we suddenly see when crossing the road. So in those circumstances, fear is good. But the trouble with fear, it's also triggered on three other occasions. Fear is triggered when we sense that our livelihood, our status, or our reputation is under threat. And when fear is triggered because of one of those three things, it generally does not serve us well because then fear shows up as us closing down from the world around us and just focusing on ourselves. We see the world as a place of scarcity where there are winners and losers. It's a binary sum and we have to be the one to win. And quite often it shows up in us as anger or worst of all, ego. And when we're driven by ego, ego is Greek for I, we just focus on ourselves and we forget about those others around us, whether that's our team or the customers that we serve. But the good news is we have a choice. And that choice is to see fear as just a warning flag and not to act on it, but instead to see it as a prompt to source ourselves from, from love. And in business, what love looks like is not being closed down. It's about being open. It's about seeing the world as a place of possibility and opportunity. It's about um, focusing on our people and those we serve, not just on ourselves. You know? And instead of ego, we lead with what I call humble confidence. And humble confidence is about being absolutely confident about what we're good at, our strengths, and resolute 
on where we're heading, ready to make the decisions when they need to be taken, but importantly, having the humility to listen and to engage our people in our team, to tap into that collective genius that's in our team to help figure out what we need to do. When we lead with humble confidence, we are no longer transfixed on knowing the answer. Instead, we're comfortable leading on the unknown when we don't know the answer mm -hmm. and being the one instead focused on A, where we're going, but also asking the important question. So as together with our team, we can figure out where we're heading. So humble confidence is the antidote to ego. It's about learning to lead from a place of love and being comfortable not knowing the answer rather than leading from a place of fear and ego, which can hold us back. And you talk about this as well, and I've, I've long understood this, that it requires courage, not confidence. Courage comes first to nonetheless move forward. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, courage cannot exist without fear, but courage can only be sustained by love. So linking into the earlier part of the conversation, you know, we, we can't go on um, being afraid of things for, for years and years and years. We, we just can't. It's unsustainable. It wears us down. Um, and that's like taking a position against things. You know, it, it's wearing. But when we choose to take a stand for something instead and leave from a place of love, then... Um, that sustains our courage to carry on forward, even when times are hard, even when we are knocked back, it has us get up again and move forward. Um, that's how we, we sustain courage. It's through love, not through fear of things. Yeah, love that. All right. I, I want to explore, well, I'd like you to share the story that you share in the book related to humble confidence about the experience with the mm. crash landing, because I also, oh, yeah. and in part, I want to tie it back to, because I think with that example, we'll start to explain really what you mean by jump seat and that component, that role in the cockpit or that person oh. in the cockpit. So I was thinking maybe you can share that story and we can explore that a bit. Absolutely. So this was uh, shortly after my 25th birthday, and I was the first officer of the co-pilot flying a, a passenger jet. 140 people from the UK down to Nairobi in Kenya. And on the approach, I, I was the operating pilot, which means that I, I was flying it and the captain in the overall charge of the aircraft, he was uh, in support of me. So I, I was controlling the flights, controlling the aircraft. And on the final approach into Nairobi, I called for the undercarriage, the wheels to be put down. And uh, well, <laughs> long story short, one of the sets of wheels under the left wing, they failed to come down. And try as we might, and you can read the full story in the book, but try as we might, we could not get these wheels down. Hmm. And after several hours of trying, we're out of options and we're faced with having to crash land the aeroplane. Wow. Now, th this is not a fun prospect <laughs> for pilots or, or passengers, but it was in this moment that uh, the captain, a guy by the name of Tony Webb, he turned to me, he said, Peter, he said, I want you to fly the crash landing and land this aircraft. Now, some people might think, well, that was an abdication of his, his responsibility, but not a right. bit of it. Let me give you some context. First of all, Tony was a very experienced pilot and captain, but not that experienced on that airplane type, on I that see. aircraft type. 
I, on the other hand, I was very experienced on that aircraft type. I, at the time, was um, one of the few crews selected to fly our prime minister. So I was seen as being at the top of my game. Uh, also, as it happened, just two or three weeks prior to that moment, I had done a, a simulator exercise um, refreshing how to crash land the airplane. So what Tony demonstrated, the captain demonstrated in that moment, was tremendous humble confidence. And he he knew that about you, right? He knew about your oh, experience. Oh, he did. Yeah, absolutely. Aircraft. We knew each other well. Um, but he demonstrated immense humble confidence. If he'd been... If he had allowed himself to be led by fear, ego would have kicked in. Right. You know, um, it would have looked like, well, I'm the captain. I'm going to do this. And probably the rest of the crew around him would be thinking, mm, are you the best person to be doing this? Um, but he said instead, no, he sought himself from a place of love, which in this situation looked like, well, what's the most important thing here? It's for us to all get on the ground safely and to walk away from the situation. And he quickly determined that the way he could add the best value was to let you land and he could lead and be observant of the other things that have to go on during that process. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So he handed over control to me and he was then in support of me so as I could do what I needed to do. And he would then focus on the, the bigger picture of, well, what happens next when the noise stops, you know? When, yeah, when you communications and all that kind of stuff that have to go Absolutely. Well. So, you know, the, I go into more detail in the book, but this was the more preeminent example I've had of humble confidence. And here's the thing. Afterwards, and clearly I'm speaking to you now, Henry, so it all worked out well. You're right. But afterwards, um, our respect for that captain, for Tony Webb, went through the roof. You know, um, did, did he have to think, deal with, though, and, and did he I wonder if he thought about what's going to be the impact on my reputation? In other words, am I going to be judged as I surrendered control? Was that part of something that went through his head? And did you have to deal with that afterwards or did he have to deal with that afterwards? Well, quite possibly it did go through his mind because. It, it, it's a trigger for fear. You know, here his mm. life, his livelihood, his status and reputation were on the right. line. Exactly. And so it would have been very easy for him to um, lead himself and others through fear. But yeah. no, he had the courage yeah. to address all of those things and choose the bigger picture, to choose to source himself from love and to lead with humble confidence. So he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about everybody on board that aeroplane and being able to go home safe to their families. That's what he was thinking about. And uh, no, he, he was elevated in people's opinion afterwards sure. because they respected the decision he'd made because they understood why he made it. So um, yeah, it didn't undermine him. One iota. And one thing as well, when we're talking about handing over control, we're not talking about abdication. Right, exactly. You know, and that's the difference, right? Yeah, that's the big difference. It's a big clarifier there. Yeah, a really important one. Uh, the distinction between delegation and abdication, you know, delegating, you're giving someone else the opportunity to step into a role and take the lead, but you are still retaining overall responsibility and ownership for the, the outcome, you know, if they screw up. Uh, whereas if they succeed, then you're giving them the accolade. Abdication is where you just turn your back on things yeah. and you're not in the slightest bit interested and whether they succeed or fail. The other person takes the rap, you know. Mm-hmm. So, no, this was delegation, not abdication. And it was in a context of 
uh, of love and a focus on others rather than fear, ego, and a focus on self. Yeah, and that, that applies, of course, so clearly to business environments. As business owners, we delegate, we help others to, to grow, but we, didn't, we never abdicate the ultimate responsibility for what needs to happen in our business. Absolutely. And I, I delve into this a little bit more because uh, in the book, because the, this is not about um, uh, micromanagement. It's not about, um, uh, well, you know, tinkering around the edges. No, that, that's not, not delegation. Um, this is about empowering others. And that, that's the thing about jump seat leadership. You know, it's not about retaining or growing our own power. It's about lifting others up and empowering them. So when the time is right, they can take the lead, just as Tony did to me on that day in Nairobi to land that aircraft. Brilliant. All right. I just want to make sure we clarify the term jump seat. I'm, I happen to be familiar with it because I'm, I've been around yeah. the airline industry. My wife was a flight attendant. She's she's ridden on the jump seat many times. But oh, explain right. okay. why, why you brought in that term and, <laughs> and the, what it symbolizes here. Well, it was inspired by another flying story, actually. Years later in my career, I'd just been checking out a new captain and certifying him. So I flew with him from the UK uh, over to San Francisco, and he did an excellent job, a uh, young chap by the name of Callum. And as we uh, shut down the aircraft in San Francisco, I said, Callum, great job. I'll sign you up now. You're fully certified mm. as captain to fly this aircraft anywhere in the world with a standard crew. We're going to stay here the night, but in the morning, you'll have a regular first officer with you, and I'll be down the back with the other passengers as you fly us back towards Washington Dulles. And that was a great moment, great moment. Um, the following morning, I was just reading a magazine, waiting for the flight to depart, and Callum came to me and he said, look, it's very busy here uh, at San Fran during rush hour. He said, can you come and sit on the jump seat just to act mm. as an extra pair of eyes as we taxi out and depart just for safety? I said, yeah, great, great idea, Captain. And that was hugely courageous. You know, he just yes. got me off his back yep. after being checked for months. Um, but no, he was serving a higher purpose, which was the safety of everyone on board. So the jump seat is a third seat on many flight decks of many large aircraft. And it's immediately behind the two pilot seats, the captain and the co-pilot. When you sat there, you can reach forward and touch those two pilots. So that's where I sat. We taxed it out. Callan did a great job. Um, he didn't need me at all. He had it all covered as I knew he would. We got clearance to take off. We thundered down the runway and we just lifted off. We were around about three or 400 feet high above the ground and we had an emergency. And what I then chose to do in the next two seconds would dictate whether we all survived or not. But here's the thing, Henry, I did absolutely nothing. I sat there quite calmly with my hands in my lap because in that moment, I didn't need to be a leader. I needed to be a great follower. Hmm. I knew that Callum, we prepared him, we trained him to handle these numerous other situations. If we hadn't had confidence in him, I would have had no business certifying him the day before. All I needed to do was to have Callum feel that I had his back and to stay out of his way so he could do his job. And that's what I did. And again, and that I'm situation, the way that you communicated that was by remaining silent and not interfering and not, you know, not panicking and all of those things. That's how you can in that particular situation. That's how you communicated that. Right. Totally. 
and here's the thing about communication. You know, I was outside um, the, the, the sort of vision of Callum. He was mm -hmm. facing forward, I was over his, his right shoulder. He right. couldn't actually see me, but he could sense me. Sure. You know, it's just like when you, you phone up your, your wife, partner or whatever, and you can tell on the phone how they're feeling, what day they've had, even when they haven't said anything. You know, sure. it, it's, it's the same in that situation. And if I'd been fidgety or nervous or tense, he would have sensed it. Absolutely. And that would have detracted him from what he needed to do, who he needed to be in that moment. And, you know, many of us, most of us uh, are not in that physical situation of being on the jump seat. But, you know, in business, we come across it all the time. There you are, you're running your business and perhaps your new sales guy is just about to close a deal. And it's a very, very important customer. How tempting is it to step in and take back control? Very tempting for my ego, because my ego might kick in and say, you know, I want some of this glory in this victory. Well, or, or we see our, our livelihood status or reputation. Yeah, he's going to mess or, this up and I have to intervene now exactly. or we're not going to get this deal. So the, this is the point, you know, um, the, the, the flying metaphor, well, the examples I give, they're all very dramatic, uh, of course, and... Well, perhaps people listening after they've read the book, nobody would want to fly with me again. But hey, it all worked out well. So, right. you know, um, but it, it is a great metaphor for, for business because we have all been on that jump seat at one time or another where it is so, so tempting to step in. But the damage that we do when we step in, you know, perhaps lines aren't literally on the line as they were out of San Francisco. But... The, the, the confidence and the ability of the, uh, the understudy of the person could be shattered. You know, we prick that balloon of confidence. And at the end of the day, we don't just want one pilot flying around the world delivering the work. We want numerous pilots. And so we have to prepare them. We have to lift them up, lift them up and train them. But then we need to take a step back into that jump seat and allow them to do what they've been trained to do. So that's what Lean from the Jump Seat is all about. It. And the handing over control thing, you know, it, it's, this is the point. If we lead understanding one thing, the one thing is at some stage, we all give up control, Henry. We all do. You know, if the CEO is a company or founder of a company, you will retire. If you are a team leader, you will change teams at some, some juncture. Or heck, as a parent, your kids grow up leave home and start leading your, their own lives. We all hand over control at some stage. It is inevitable. Leading from the jump seat is about how to lead with that inevitability in mind. Because when we lead from that perspective where we're lifting others up and preparing them to carry forward and lead when we've taken that step back, the remarkable thing is that fantastic opportunities arise in the now, in the moment. And that's why the book is all about Lean from the Jump Seat, creating extraordinary opportunities by handing over control. It is the only way to lead if you want to see what you really care for in life, continue on after you've taken that step back. Brilliant. Great stuff. Thank you for sharing all that and those stories. We'll start to wrap it up here. Obviously, the book, it's available anywhere you might get a book. I, I found it on Amazon. But you also do keynote speaking engagements. So just tell us a little bit about that and, and anything else you want us to know or, or take some action on. Sure. So, um, yes, the, the book, I think 
Amazon's got 22% off at the moment, uh, which Excellent. is great news. Yep. But uh, yes, I, I speak all over the, the world. I work with um, leadership teams. I work with, I, I've run four-hour sessions for almost 3,000 people at a time um, in, in large auditoriums. Uh, I run workshops, uh, training to teach people how to lead from the jump seat. So as those things that are really important to them can carry on long after they've taken a step back. So yes, it's all out there. I'm developing uh, online courses too, um, which will be appearing uh, in the second quarter of this year. So yeah, exciting times. Absolutely. Where, where do I go online to learn more about that? You can find lots of information on my website, leadingfromthejumpseat.com. Um, and I'm in the usual uh, social media places, LinkedIn, uh, Peter Docker, Twitter, at Peter Docker, and uh, uh, where else? Instagram. I've had a go on TikTok. I haven't had. I haven't nailed TikTok yet. I don't know whether you have, Henry. But <laughs> I have um, not. My daughter has, daughter. but I have not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So obviously, books. I'm always interested in recommendations. Again, Peter's book is "Leading from the Jump Seat: How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control." Is there another book, Peter, that you've read recently that you would recommend? Yeah, there is actually one right in the front of my mind. Um, a great friend of mine, uh, Ralph Specht, who's former CEO of a company called Spark 44. He has just released a book, uh, let's see, on the 22nd, so a couple of days ago, wow. called Building Corporate Soul. And it's very much in tune with the sort of things I, I, I believe. And it's a great book about how to create companies with what Ralph calls soul. Um, and how to lead from that perspective. Um, Ralph is, is German, the way I, I read this book, which by the way is in English, it's a forensic <laughs> <laughs> examination, you know, as we might expect from the German culture, he's sure. brilliant. Uh, so yes, I, I highly recommend that, that book. Wonderful, thanks for that recommendation. We'll have a link to that book as well as Peter's book on the show notes page for this episode at thehowofbusiness.com. All right, Peter, we'll wrap it up with a couple last questions. What's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation we've had about jump seat leadership, in particular from a small business owner's perspective? What's one thing you want us to take away? Well, be the pe pebble in the pond. What I mean by that is regardless of whether we're leading a small team, our own business, or a, a huge corporation, what we say, what we do, is like throwing that small pebble into a pond. We never know how far out those ripples will go. And just taking a moment with a, a colleague, uh, someone we work with, um, it can have an enormous impact on their lives without us even knowing about it. You know, most of us in some way, shape or form want to be significant. We want to make a difference. And often we think about the big things. But no, being significant is all about the small things. It's about being that pebble in the pond. So as you step out today after listening to this podcast, think about how you can be that pebble in the pond for the people around you and the people that you lead. And then over time, that adds up to extraordinary things that we accomplish. I believe so, yes. Yeah, love it. Tell us again, Peter, where you want us to go online to learn more leadingfromthejumpseat.com. There's lots of videos and resources on there. And uh, if you want to drop me a line, uh, there's a contact form there. 
And uh, I'd be delighted if people read the book, I'd be delighted to hear your feedback, questions. Um, it's always a joy to me to uh, hear how people uh, receive what's in that book. Brilliant. Extraordinary conversation. Peter, thank you so much for sharing, for being with me today, and uh, for sharing all of this knowledge and experiences. I appreciate it. It's been an absolute delight, Henry. And thank you, too, for all the work that you do helping to lift others up out there. Thank you. Appreciate that. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for joining me for this episode of The How of Business. My guest today, again, was Peter Docker. I release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at my website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.